This is a podcast from 3RRR 102.7 FM in Melbourne, truly independent community radio. And uh, so far in this election campaign, we haven't heard that much about the NBN and what will come next depending on who forms government. And yet it's a major piece of infrastructure that affects all of us. So we've asked Julian Thomas to join us. He's been watching the evolution of the NBN, the National Broadband Network, and is Professor of Media and Communications at RMIT. And he's on the phone. And very good morning to you, Julian. Good morning. And uh, so where are we at now with the NBN? Are we pretty much rolled out? Or, you know, how are we going with budgets? And how many of us have got the, um, the good oil? Good questions, and I think um, everybody is uh, pretty keen to know about this, actually. The the NBN is getting towards completion uh, of the, the, the network that the coalition has uh, taken over and, and, and redesigned, so there are a lot of uh, those uh, suburban areas and, and, and regional areas which are in the, as, as, as I understand it, are in the, in the sort of sta- final stages of being connected, uh, and, 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 and I think the expectation is that, that, that over the rest of this year, uh, virtually everybody will will be uh, will will be connected or or will be close to being connected. So we're starting to see what uh, the Australian internet looks like uh, with uh, the NBN as it stands, and and that's it's, so and 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 that's kind of quite interesting because it turns out to be uh, very different from the NBN that was envisaged almost ten years ago as a high speed fibre to the home network. It's now uh, a network that is uh, based on a whole lot of different technologies and uh, in, in many respects uh, uh, not delivering the kind of performance that people might have expected uh, from that sort of idea of a future-proof fibre network. We've now got something which is using a lot of the copper uh, and, and uh, the, the, um, the, the cable uh, that was originally constructed for pay TV. So it's a very different picture from the one people expected um, and uh, one which, and it's a picture which probably falls short of a lot of people's expectations on the other hand, the NBN, where it is being completed, is offering people something better than what they had before. And, and can you just clarify, I'm hearing, and I suppose it's happening at my own house, where I've got a broken HFC cable to my house, and they're going to replace it with a new HFC cable, not with fibre. And I know someone who's had a broken copper connection to their house, and they're replacing it with copper, which costs more than cable and, and more than, and than fibre. Is this really how it's happening? Yes, it it is really. Because hap- I was really happening. shocked at that. I thought, so, oh, you so know, the, I suppose so all the, of us would be digging up our copper. I suppose if we thought we we're going to get fibre if it was broken. I suppose. Well, yes, you would hope so, but um, it, it's it's not panning out that way. And in fact, um, I think NBN has been one of the um, major customers of of copper <laughs> for um, uh, internet connections globally. Actually, in the last few years, as they've been. Um, Building this um, this mixed technology network, so there's a lot of copper in it, uh, and uh, which means that our broadband speeds and the capabilities of our network are not what uh, we would have uh, expected from from a fibre network by any means. So, and 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 of course the 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 
big question is, uh, are we really just looking now at a long cycle of looking for investment to improve this network uh, if it is not able to deliver uh, what households or businesses actually need? Uh, so, th- so, so I think th- this is going to be, you know, a, a really an, an, an ongoing issue. There's another issue in what you've talked about, which is the fact that you've got uh, a broken um, cable that that the network connection isn't working, and the NBN has also been uh, subject to a, a huge number of complaints and problems about the quality of service and the quality of connections. And I think this is something that any new government is also going to have to spend a huge amount of time working on and looking at. And we may have a new government next month. The election, of course, is only a matter of weeks away. And we've heard from from the Labor Party that they are not pledging to replace the the copper connections with fibre at this point, which, of course, was the original NBN plan, the fibre-to-the-premises model. Why is that? I mean, and should the Labor Party be trying to install the NBN as it was originally envisaged, or is it better to work with the system that we have now? Oh, well, look, I think it's a, it's a really difficult call. Um, we, we now have an NBN which, as I said, is almost complete. So it, it, to, I, I think whether we... Uh, how we go about upgrading that network, which we will no doubt have to do over time, is going to be the critical question. But uh, there, there is something called the NBN which has been constructed and we are going to be living with that come what may, for some period of time. I think that uh, Labor's plan is sensible in terms of uh, their commitment to uh, taking a pretty hard look at what has been built and uh, what it's actually cost. There's not a lot of transparency on that at the moment. And what would be required to upgrade that network or even to make it properly functional, uh, fit for purpose, uh, over the next five to ten years, so I think, uh, and 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 really, what happens now? We're in a new phase with the completion of the rollout. What do we do with with NBN? The original idea was that it would be privatised and sold. So who is going to buy it? And if the idea is that they're going, to, that whoever is 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 operating that network is going to have to invest a lot more in improving it. Where is that money going to come from? What's it going to be for? What's the business model? We're already finding that NBN services are expensive. So if there are more costs involved in improving the network, how are we going to pay for that? Yeah, all good questions. Julian Thomas is with us. He's Professor of Media and Communications over at RMIT and we're talking about the NBN and what next when we have or we will have a change of government of sorts. We might end up with an LNP government or an ALP government. Um, So, I mean, you've written quite a lot recently, Julian, about uh, the digital divide and we know that the NBN was there to try and deal with that, particularly with regional uh, telecommunication customers and especially in remote areas as well. Is the NBN kind of meeting um, or starting to heal those digital divides or are we likely to see this continue with the new network? I think we've really got ongoing problems around digital exclusion, by which I mean people being unable to participate completely in the digital economy. The problem is that, as you would know, governments and 
edu- in education and in health and e- elsewhere, everybody's now expected to be connected. All of those services are moving online. But the people who need them most are people who are actually struggling to get good, affordable internet access. And this is something that a lot of organisations have been emphasising in the last couple of years. So the NBN has made a little bit of a difference. If you look at Tasmania, for example, which is a state where the rollout is virtually complete, there is some evidence there that it has improved connections. In other words, the NBN is better than what was there before. But, of course, that is very different from the promises that were made about the NBN. When it was first devised, we, we, we imagined this would be a network of the future. For us to say now that what we have is something that is better than what was there before is, falls a long way short of what uh, people originally thought this, um, this network would achieve. So it's improving people's connections and it is encouraging people to, 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 to subscribe to uh, fixed broadband and all of that is a good thing. The problem is that there is really no affordable NBN plan around. If you are, in, if you are a low-income household, if you rely on the pension, if you are, if, 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 if you are dealing with any of those kinds of problems around precarious employment or low income, uh, you're going to struggle to afford um, an NBN connection. And that's not what the original idea of the NBN was. So uh, there, there is a real challenge there. And um, I think there are a number of interesting proposals around uh, which um, are looking at ways of addressing this, but it's a very serious issue. And so does that suggest then, Julian, that, I mean, as well as the, the having proper infrastructure in place and working with the system that we have and, and seeking to upgrade it as, as best as possible into the future, that what's really re- required is, is um, another set of additional supports, I guess, to enable those people in areas that aren't as well serviced by the NBN or, or those who can't afford it um, to be assisted in some way financially to, to, to have that, that quality of internet connection? Yes, I think that's exactly the sort of thing that, that we need to do now. We, we've spent a lot of money on improving the, the, the network, the, the infrastructure in Australia. We don't, the infrastructure isn't what we'd all want. It's not as good as we'd like it to be. It's not a fibre to the home system. It's, it's far short of that. But it is what we have. What we do absolutely have to do is look at how, is make sure that people can access this network, can use it, have the skills to use it, and that it's affordable. And we're, you know, we're a fair way short of that. So I think we've got to move in terms of our overall policy approaches to this problem. We've got, we've got to move a little bit away from the fixation on the, on, on, on the network itself uh, to also start thinking very seriously about how people can use it and to make sure that it's, that, that, that it's affordable. And um, just recognising that we are in the midst of a, a political campaign right now, I mean, mm. you know, when, I don't know that anyone necessarily votes just on this issue, but it seems to me that both the major parties are kind of in the same position. We're not necessarily going to get a, a better service one way or another, although it seems that the ALP is looking at some of the equity issues a bit more closely. 
Yeah, I think that's fair enough. I, I think we're yet to hear from the government about um, what they would uh, do in this area, but I guess I've been encouraged by uh, some of the um, things Labor has said. They have said that it's time to really focus on this problem of uh, digital inclusion, and you know I, I think that is that 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 is really important. I, I think we're waiting to see uh, what the uh, government is 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 now going to do in this area. They have. Uh, they, they have made some announcements in the past. They have committed some funds in the past to improving digital literacy, for example, among older Australians. So there, there are things that have been happening, but the, this whole policy landscape over the last uh, few years under the coalition has been very fragmented. Really, there hasn't been an overarching sort of strategic vision about what uh, connected Australia would look like and, 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 and how it could be achieved. And I suppose that's what we're really looking for from both parties over the next few weeks. And what a shame that we haven't had that. Thanks so much for having a chat with us today. A pleasure. Thank you very much. And Julian Thomas is Professor of Media and Communications at RMIT. And it was just under two years ago when Scott Ludlam resigned as a WA Senator after a nine-year stint due to discovering he was still a New Zealand citizen, which of course led to that whole domino effect where we lost a bunch of parliamentarians to Section 44 of the Constitution. It's pretty hard to believe we've only now just come to the end of that particular parliament. Uh, since then, Scott Ludlam's been writing for The Guardian, among other things, including continuing his advocacy for global digital rights. And in this vein, he's recently penned an essay for the Griffith Review called Cypherpunks and Surveillance Power, the Global Struggle for Our Digital Rights. And he's on the line to have a chat about it. It's um, great to have you on Triple R, Scott. Good morning. It's nice to be back. And um, it's... Uh, kind of nice reading your essay because while you recognise we're in a, a dire state when it comes to global digital rights, um, you've taken a positive and kind of constructive approach in this essay and focus on some of the good things happening such, of, such as uh, platform cooperatives and open source alternatives to Google. Um, why was that important to you to take that tone? I think just because I've got bored writing about dystopia um it's it's a lot more difficult but i think it's more interesting to write about some of the positive stuff that's going on out there given that so much of the of the digital rights field in australia and globally is in such a mess it, it just felt like a good opportunity to talk about some of the alternatives that are that are popping up and, and so talk to us about what some of those alternatives are and, and i guess why you see hope in them I suppose I went looking for everything that doesn't reflect the model that's been called surveillance capitalism, which is basically about mining people's private information as though it was, you know, oil or coal or something. And it, it takes you back to the early days of the internet, to the free software movement of which the open source movement grew out of, and the kind of quite deep foundations underneath the medium that's been occupied by surveillance capitalists, like the Googles and the Facebooks and so on. It's actually founded on the principle of empowerment of, of users, of people who use these technologies, of, um, of openness, uh, of a willingness to share stuff. And that's all still there. And it's been, um, you know, it's not catching the headlines at the moment, but a huge amount of the architecture of, of the internet, including operating systems and, and um, you know, a lot of the really important core technologies 
have all been created by open source developers uh, and by the free software movement using quite, I guess, quite a different philosophy than uh, than, the, than the platform monopolists and the, and the surveillance capitalists. And so some of these platforms like Firefox and, and DuckDuckGo, which some listeners will be familiar with, um, messaging um, software like Signal. So there's some of these products around. And I'm, uh, some of them I hadn't heard of that you mentioned in your essay and I was kind of quickly looking them up. I, I did enjoy that there is a sort of a very basic website looking at Google alternatives. If you want to have a new, Google, you know, different browser to Google, you've got one different mail to Google, there's another one. And so finding sources for that information's important and I, I mean it's not my phrase but someone said once that google's a bit like plastic like you can do your best to <laughs> not get it and not touch it but it's almost impossible not to interact it at some point but i mean is do you feel like there's a, a growing movement of people really trying to remind themselves that there are alternatives out there yeah i think there is and i, I hadn't heard that plastic phrase before but that's perfect so i've been using I used this exercise actually as an opportunity to figure out um, how many of these tools I, I would use myself. So kind of de-Googling my life, getting out of Gmail and using ProtonMail, um, getting out of the Google search ecosystem unless I'm after something very specific and using DuckDuckGo. And so part of, um, I think there's, there's kind of two phases to this. One is the political dimension, which is a collective endeavor. And one is about our own use of tools in, in our own individual sense. They're as important as each other. And in both senses, I think there's something of a groundswell of return. But we, we do have a long way to go. In some ways, it feels like people are, have become um, at sometimes complacent about the fact that our personal lives and data is out there for, for companies to mine and so on. And, and it's easy, I think, to kind of give up and go, well, me and the billions of people around the world have just, that, that's kind of the price we pay in, to interact in the digital world. But do you see that there is, I, I guess, a, a movement that could potentially develop around these concerns around digital security and privacy and that sort of thing? Because it can feel, you can feel powerless at times and like the game's already been lost. Yeah, I think that's all spot on. Uh, I cover a little bit of that in the essay, I guess, that since, um, which we all share, that, um, that it's been lost. And, like, who cares, actually, if ads are following me around the internet and, and stuff appears to have been personalised and Google's reading my email so that it can target ads at me. You know, it's annoying, it's mildly creepy, but these services are free and they're useful and so bother it. And I think that's the... Um, you know, complacency might be a bit of a strong word, but that's kind of what we're up against. And I'm not pointing the finger at other people, like this is something that, that many of us share. Uh, but the, I, I mean, maybe what happened with, uh, with Cambridge Analytica 2016 election in the United States and, um, and various other things, it's like it's not just a particular brand of toothpaste following you around on Facebook. People are using these very targeted, very fine-grained, um, creepy profiles to try and swing elections. Yeah, it's, it's the commercial uses are creepy enough. The political uses even more so. Uh, and at some point, you've got to draw a line, and you can do it in a multitude of different ways. And that's some of it's a it's it's definitely not an exhaustive look around. I realised straight after I filed that article that I there were a bunch of stuff that I didn't get in there. But there's plenty of things that we can do just to return a bit of agency to us. And that helps build the ecosystem of alternatives for other people. And where do you see the role of regulation in this? 
um, because uh, you know you were in the Senate when when some of that stuff was happening in, in 2016. Was there a wake up kind of moment in the Australian Parliament? And I know we've seen uh, a similar sort of more even more horrific scenario with the with the live streaming of of the massacre in in New Zealand to make parliamentarians go, hang on. We need to have a look at some of the stuff happening online. Is is regulation going to be key, or do you think it can actually happen through these more open source platforms that we can make it happen ourselves? Uh, I think I think you need a bit of everything. I don't think any kind of magic bullet. Um, and just looking at the way, for example, that social media platforms and the big companies uh, handled the, the diffusion and dissemination of of ISIS propaganda and and. Uh, organizing material online to the way that they've handled the, the diffusion of white supremacist material. The, these are really deeply political questions and the Australian Parliament, in, in my experience, has been looking in the wrong direction for decades and there isn't a majority of Australian parliamentarians. There's the Greens, there's a handful of independents, including a few, a few people who are gone now, who have been fighting for digital rights for as long as I've been involved in this stuff. But, you know, on the other side, you've got Peter Dutton and the Labor Party kind of blindly following them into the, into the encryption debacle, into data retention, um, into various forays into, um, uh, you know, greater dragnet surveillance, five-eyes surveillance of the Australian people. And none of, it, none of it has been able to keep people safe. It's really all about the accumulation of power. So we do have a long way to go, um, which is why, in some sense, while we're waiting for the politics to shift and, and working on those campaigns, it is worth people taking a bit of power back into their own hands just in the tools that we use individually and as a community. We're speaking with Scott Ludlam, of course, former Green Senator. Uh, we're talking to him specifically today about his contribution to the latest Griffith Review, Cypher Funks and Surveillance Power, The Global Struggle for Our Digital Rights. And I'm interested on a personal level, Scott. I mean, uh, as you, um, you know, are experiencing an election campaign and, and um, potential change of government and that kind of thing, and over recent times observed that the passing of that encryption legislation and those debates uh, happen in Parliament... When you've been sort of since you've been outside the tent, do you feel like you still have a great contribution to make in your advocacy on these sorts of issues compared to when you were were there having these debates in Parliament? Um, there's nothing, I guess, having had that experience, there's nothing that can quite replace the buzz of that building, the platform, the team that I was able to work with, like really incredible people, and the tools that you get as an MP, um, the kind of capacities that you have as a campaigner. That's very hard to replace. But I'm also of the view, and it's got stronger since I left, that, um, you know, there's only 76 senators. Most people aren't going to get the privilege or the opportunity to do that. What happens outside that building um, is, is just as important as what happens in there. Um, election campaigns, social movements, um, organisers really create the playing field on which Parliament rests. And at the moment, for example, whether you look at refugee policy, climate change, foreign policy or digital rights, at the moment we don't have the numbers for genuine progressive change. And that's partly because of the way... Um, uh, of, of, the, of the will of the electorate that keeps electing people who, uh, you know, support the coal industry and gas fracking and so on in the instance of climate change. And that's a, that's a role for social movements. 
I think the, one of the most, one of the sharpest recent examples was in the marriage equality debate, where the politicians and the parliamentary majorities came last. All of the hard work got done outside of parliament, and then you get the vote, and then you get the reform and the change. And I think it's going to be the same with digital rights. And in, you know, in that case, I've got as much power uh, and as much skin in that game as anybody else. And it's interesting. I mean, I, I saw that the AEC put out how many people had enrolled and something like 97% of eligible uh, voters in Australia have enrolled this time round. And I think, you know, you've been part of that Greens team for, for a long time and are in touch with younger voters. I mean, they generally uh, are more likely than older voters to, to vote Green. Do you think that having such a high proportion of, of younger voters is going to be influential in this election, Scott? I think it will, yeah. And, I mean, the um, marriage equality folks got pulled into a horrific campaign that they that they were trying very hard to avoid in the sense that Malcolm Turnbull kind of threw them under the bus with that referendum. And the sting in the tail has been this very complete electoral role and a very high proportion of young people enrolled for the very first time. And like any other demographic or cohort, you can't point the finger at a huge diverse group of people and say you're all this or that. But I, you know, the sense that I get is that it's going to be more progressive than the older cohort that's still backing Morrison and, and the Tories and the National Party. And that's like a slow-moving express train, demographically, that's running very hard against um, the people who are running the show at the moment. And I guess our job is to try and hold the line because this thing is, is pretty slow to come and they can do an awful lot of damage to people and to the country in the meantime. And you've been doing a lot of writing for the likes of The Guardian and, and The Monthly and, of course, The Griffith Review, um, as we're talking about today. I understand you have a book out on digital security and politics later this year. What else do you have planned? I mean, are you continuing to, to write and publish and that kind of thing? What does the immediate future hold for you? No, so the book is the book is on its way. Um, I will be gobsmacked if, I, if it comes out this year. I think early <laughs> 2020, it seems more likely. Um, and that's partly why I've pulled back from The Guardian and some of the other bits and bobs, is to just try and focus on on that. Um, I spent nearly all of last year travelling around the world talking to campaigners and to Greens, BG and small G around the world, um, journalists, um, activists, people doing remarkable work all over the place. And now I'm trying to condense that into something useful, which will hopefully be out early next year. And you but are in the meantime, there's a, there's a government to overthrow, so I'm taking a three-week holiday. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, and, and, you know, for fear of giving you a, a full platform to promote everything you're doing in Melbourne, you are in Melbourne today, although you couldn't make it into our, our studios. Um, you know, people are talking about Victoria and, and Melbourne in particular and electorates here as being in play this time round, that that's not common for particularly Liberal-held um, seats in Victoria to look like they might change colour. Um, I mean, what's your sense on the ground as, as you uh, hand out for the Greens, Scott? Uh, it's remarkable. So I'm in Kuyong, which is um, Josh Frydenberg's electorate, and I understand he's still a relatively popular local MP who's kind of got out on the ground and done all the work locally but his party has just completely lost its mind and so you've got a blue ribbon seat in Melbourne um, which absolutely is in play for the first time um, Julian Burnside's running for the Greens it's his um, first foray into electoral politics in this way, he's a, he's a remarkable candidate uh, and he's, he's got decades of work behind him in refugee advocacy and and other work 
we worked with him protecting a um an aboriginal community in the northern territory from radioactive waste dump back in 2012 up at muckety uh and so the, yeah the local branch is is firing on all cylinders and it's kind of all systems go and i think that's it's a reflection of, of really large-scale shifts, certainly bigger than, than um, what's just happening here in Kuyong across the country, of the Conservatives having completely lost their moorings. You know, they're attached, bitterly attached to the coal industry and to the gas industry, which now has a smell of death around it, and they haven't been able to disentangle themselves from that. Uh, and there's, there's big shifts in play. So it's, it's good to be a part of that, but if anybody's watching the polls, you'll know that it's not a slam dunk. Um, it's, got, it's very, very close. And people like Palmer and Morrison with, you know, with taxpayers' money are hurling huge amounts of cash at the election. And they've got the Murdoch machine acting as, as state media for them. So it's, it's in the balance. And that's why I've kind of come out to help out where I can. Well, all the best with that and all the best with the book. And um, thanks for joining us today and um, talking about your latest essay as well, which we can commend to people. It's in the latest Griffiths. It's called Cypherpunk and Surveillance Power. And uh, Scott Ledlam has been our guest. And thanks for speaking with us. Thank you so much. Now, as awareness grows about climate change, there's been a lot of focus on emissions reductions and global initiatives that could, if implemented properly and with haste, save us from some of the worst consequences of a warming planet. But with all the technocratic language, complicated policy options and simply the enormity of the challenge, it can be difficult for us as individuals and a collective to properly orient ourselves at this crucial point in history. The Climate Museum in New York City represents one attempt to change this, it seeks to bring about a cultural transformation in how we perceive the issue and organise ourselves in order to advance positive change. The museum was founded by Miranda Massey uh, and she's in Melbourne to deliver a keynote address as part of the Art Plus Climate Equals Change Festival. She's literally just stepped off a plane and has been good enough to come into Triple R. Welcome. So delighted to be here. Thank you for having me. Pleasure. And so you left your job as a lawyer some years ago to found the Climate Museum. Talk us through that process and what you wanted to achieve. I was a civil rights uh, and social justice attorney, a trial lawyer for a number of years, and gradually became aware that the environment is really the greatest site of inequality. I had dismissed environmentalism, I'm embarrassed to report, as being a concern of the privileged, a luxury ticket item. And I came to see that, in fact, if you don't have an equal right to thrive in your environment as an organism, then equal and integrated schooling or a workplace free from sexual harassment or any of the other really important social issues I was privileged to, to have the chance to work on fade away or are hard to enforce. That's the primary that's the primary site where equality first happens. And then recognizing those connections between in particular racial justice and the environment and starting to work on them, I began as and and many people who become involved in the climate community um, have similar stories I started to perseverate about climate and to ask myself why I wasn't focusing on that more and more and more and kept pushing the thought away because um, it's never convenient to make a huge change and then when um, th there was a large storm, a hurricane that hit New York City called Sandy, um, which which our listeners today may or may not um, be familiar with or remember. It was a U, it was very yeah, famous in the US. It was, it was. Yeah. So that I was sitting alone in my dark apartment 
and some kind of tectonic plate shift happened where I knew I was going to have to start working on climate. Um, and I was also looking for a next big thing. And a couple of weeks later, the idea for a climate museum came so completely and organically into my mind that I was absolutely certain that I had read about it somewhere and was inadvertently plagiarizing because it's so obviously something that we need to move forward together. We need everybody on deck. This is an emergency. We need all hands. And people are starting from different spots. Culture provides varied and soft pathways into climate engagement, which can otherwise be scary or seem polarized um, or stigmatic. Um, and most of all, culture and the arts hit us where we live. They meet us, I should say, where we live, in our bodies, in our hearts, and they're communal. Mm. So there's a lot of climate advocacy that's very intellectual and about policy, and that's critically important. But really, as mammals, where we live is in the emotional, the tactile, and the communal. And It's really interesting hearing you coming to, I guess, the environmental movement or, or becoming a climate change activist in some ways, if you self-identify as one. I'm reading David Wallace Wells' book, The Uninhabitable Earth at the moment, an extraordinary yeah. book, and yeah. he similarly didn't have a background as an environmentalist, wasn't kind of a, a greenie as we might uh, presume somebody t- like who's written a book about that to be. Yet there are more and more people nowadays who are, the, the light bulb is kind of switching on and they're discovering how enormous the challenge is before us, um, people who may not have had a background in environmental politics or policy and that kind of thing? There, there, I think it's absolutely the case that people who have um, are, are able to carve out the liberty to change their lives in a fundamental way, if you start to engage with what's happening with the climate emergency, it becomes incredibly compelling to do something about it. And so if you uh, that that is that is a privileged position to be able to change your life around in that way. But if you can, I, I know a number of conversion stories too. Mm. I also think it's incredibly important to emphasize that you don't have to change your job and your life in a fundamental way in order to join the climate conversation, because we need all we need all to be joining together. We need everyone's voice to be registering. And a lot of the time, the scale of the problem is overwhelming. And furthermore, climate risk is distributed in time and a space in a way that we as human beings did not evolve to respond to properly. It's too contradictory and too far out and too abstract feeling. And even in the middle of a hurricane, you're not experiencing the hurricane in your body, you're experiencing the storm. You're not experiencing, excuse me, climate change, you're experiencing the storm. Mm. So finding different ways for people to wrap their minds around those relationships is incredibly important in finding a multitude of ways for people to engage. And so how does the the Climate Museum play into that? I mean, what exactly, what types of events, exhibitions, projects and so on did you envisage would um, advance that process, I suppose, once once the, um, the project was established? I'll tell you I'll tell you what we've done in our first 15 months of being public facing which started by the way with a panel with a panel inspired by David Wallace Wells's article that was the kernel of that book mm. that you're that you're now reading. He and a number of other people joined us for a conversation about fear and hope in the climate conversation and how to speak about climate in a way that can draw people into recognizing the emergency without shutting down essentially. Um, And from there, we've done now three exhibitions. We're about to do our fourth. Thus far, those have all been primarily art shows, though they've been interdisciplinary. I think it's important 
to um, think about the significance of the arts as as a pathway into climate engagement, in, in part being here for the Climart Art uh, plus Climate Equals Change Festival. Um, I uh, that's that's my remit here in Melbourne, but I also just in, in general for all of humanity and across the globe. I think the arts are an essential way for people to. St- start to be able to sit with the enormity of what we're facing and come together around it. Um, So we've started with several art exhibitions and have been our our idea that this was something the public would respond to has been so hungrily and enthusiastically confirmed by the response that we've seen. It's been um, it just makes you want to do more and more and more. People are very eager to have a space where it's all right and expected in some way to be asking questions about climate change, to be experiencing the feelings that you can feel about climate change, and to be figuring out a way to start to take action um, to address it. So we've done art shows with cross-disciplinary scientific programming. We've done a lot of youth programming um, and are galvanized, as are I'm sure many of the people listening to our conversation, by the new youth climate movement that's developed over the last year. Mm. Um, in our very first show, we one of our principal uh, special programs was a w- youth climate arts and advocacy workshop crossing between the science and the arts to create climate advocacy for peers. Um, and it was citywide high, high school program. And since then, we've been involved in a number of youth programs and just been absolutely blown away by the power of the intergenerational justice claims that young people are making. So that's been a big component of it. And we're about to do our first show that isn't based in a collaboration with an artist or with more than one artist um, that will directly address the question of climate solutions, why they're not moving faster, and then what visitors can do um, to accelerate the process, because as as we are all well aware in this conversation, we need to go much further and much faster to avoid a cataclysm. We're speaking with Miranda Massey, the director and founder of the New York City Climate Museum. Miranda's in Melbourne for a talk at the University of Melbourne as part of the Art Plus Climate Equals Change Festival. And speaking about how this issue has has galvanised the youth, we have seen uh, you know thousands of, of, of youth take to the streets, um, take day off school to, to protest uh, and and um, agitate for for more action on mitigating climate change, as we've seen all around the world. What was it like in New York City on that day of climate action? Paint a picture for us if if you can. It was absolutely incredible. Uh, the the streets were filled with young people and there was also thanks to social media images just coming in from all over the world of young people making the most compelling moral claim you can imagine for a livable future and a livable world and one of the things about it that I think is so the clarion call of it is is in part because Climate change, the climate crisis, is a massive intensifier of existing inequalities. Will make it will intensify income and property holding inequality. It intensifies racial inequalities, inequalities between nations, even in poor countries, inequalities between the genders. N- nowhere is the inequality and injustice um, part of the climate emergency more apparent than when you look at the intergenerational dynamics it's 
not an overstatement to call it an act of intergenerational pillage to remain passive on climate. That's how extreme the situation young people will be facing is. And so when they speak their uh, minds about their futures and their visions about their futures and their hopes for what their futures can bring and hold, I think there's very little that's more powerful than that in this moment to mobilize everyone, young and old alike, um, to the cause. Yeah, and and the, it kind of feels at the moment um, with um, such things as as the youth climate marches um, and also the the demonstrations that have happened just recently with Extension Rebellion and so on um, that those who um, have been kind of part of the decision making processes. I'm thinking of of Fahani Yamin, um, who was part of negotiating the climate uh, Paris Climate Accord, has uh, you know become involved in direct action tactics and gluing her hands literally to the pavement outside and. and oil company. So it feels like even those who have been part of those very elite processes are still seeing very much a need for direct action to bring about change that is urgent, that needs to happen now. Well, uh, absolutely agree with that. And I think over time, we're going to see more and more people responding in that way, in part as the emergency becomes clearer and clearer to people, but also the action of those young people opens others who are anxious but not do anything doing anything up to taking action. So right now in the US, a surprising 73% of the population is anxious about climate change, but only 8% of us speak about it with any regularity. That's a shocking 65% gap. Um, and some of those people will, more and more of those people will turn to direct action. The Climate Museum is very supportive of that. And we also support people who will probably never march in the street, but who may call an elected representative and say, hey, stop taking fossil fuel donations. I want to know that climate policy is a priority for you. And I want to know that that policy is being made free of influence of the fossil fuel companies. Um, or they might call up a media company and demand that climate change be a focus of the upcoming presidential election coverage. It's shockingly absent from mass media, particular television coverage. Some of the newspapers are doing a better and better job in the U.S. So um, I'm not sure what the situation is with mass media in Australia on, on climate coverage. But there are all these different ways, these kinds of civic activism that people can engage in that are going to be critically important to moving things forward. The vanguard direct action part of that is 100% critical. Um, it is not the only part of the ecosystem that we're focused on at the Climate Museum, but it is essential. Yeah, well, we're, we're uh, in an election campaign mode at the moment and the, the prospect of, of building a huge mine kind of off the Great Barrier Reef is figuring almost as a proxy for, for whether major parties take climate change seriously or not. That's kind of the way that conversation is, is happening in, in the current circumstances. But looking at US politics, of course, you have presidential elections next year. We've seen on the Democrat side, Alexandra ocasio Cortez bring this um, grand plan, the Green New Deal, um, to the fore. And many Democrat um, uh, politicians have got on board with that, including those who wouldn't traditionally have been climate activists or very strong advocates for, for action on climate change. How is that playing out over there? I mean, because the Green New Deal is an argument for social justice as well as action on climate change, which is what you've kind of spoken about. Absolutely. I think, I mean, there are a couple of points that I think are incredibly important about the dynamic that you just described that's unfolding. One thing is, if you had told any anybody who's working on climate six or I, don't, I forget how many months ago November is now, but six months ago, yes, that works. Um, that uh, 
six months hence, all of the Democratic presidential um, candidates who had announced themselves would essentially have to take a position on a green, a massively ambitious Green New Deal that you would have been scoffed at. So the one thing to note is the remarkable speed with which conditions can change and are changing, and that's incredibly hopeful and important. Another thing to stress about this, and and Representative Ocasio-Cortez would say this herself, it's in no way a critique of her, but it was young people in the Sunrise Movement who brought the Green New Deal to her, to her absolute and perpetual credit. She understood its importance and immediately seized on it, Um, but that is another expression of the youth movement on climate in the end, um, getting getting a hearing in the halls of power. And that's a, a massively inspiring development as well. Mm. And um, taking it back to the, the Climate Museum itself, it's been in operation for a relatively short time now. And being, I guess, what is the first of its form, I hadn't heard of it, a climate okay. museum before. Have you been in, in talks with, with other people, institutions around the United States or around the world, or potentially during your time here in Melbourne, to collaborate or, or for others to create a similar thing in, in that model? Yes, absolutely. First, I should say that uh, five or six years ago, a, a climate change dedicated museum opened on the outskirts of Hong Kong. Mm. So we're the, we're the second, second, not the first. <laughs> um, and they are, are lovely, and, and we look forward to collaborating with them. Um, and a, a Climate Museum UK was started uh, only some months ago after its, I'm super proud to say, after its founder met our team at a the first global symposium on climate change in museums in in England last year. She was inspired to start a climate museum UK, and I'm aware of some other projects that are percolating up too, and in conversation with people. So there, there's a huge push to collaborate. Uh, absolutely, um, every project that we've done in the last 15 months has been the product of intensive partnership and collaboration. And I think w- one of the inside-out gifts of the climate crisis is that it calls us to a different level of intensive collaboration and partnership and a transcending of the usual vast array of tribalisms that that often divide our work. And that is a profoundly um, gratifying experience. And also without it, we will not succeed in taking the action we need to take on the climate emergency. And so your talk coming up this week um, talks about a, uh, which, which I haven't, haven't seen the transcript of that, of course, but it talks about the need for a cultural shift in response to the climate crisis. Is that the sort of thing you're talking about? Absolutely. We need a, we need, we, have, we inhabit a, a, a fossil fuel economy and a fossil fuel crisis. We also inhabit a fossil fuel culture where business as usual, we have to intervene in a profound and thoroughgoing way in business as usual. Um, and that means culture. That means what we experience with our senses. It means how we feel emotionally. It means aesthetics and how we respond to those. And it means experiencing those things together. Without that cultural shift, it's not ne- it's, it is not sufficient, but it is necessary for us to get to where we need to go. Another thing about the climate emergency is that we, we need the science to be ongoing. We need the cultural shift. We need the policy shift. We need young people doing sit-ins in the halls of Congress. There's no aspect of the response to climate change that's happening that we don't badly need. 
Well, it's an incredibly exciting journey you've embarked upon with the Climate Museum. Um, you can catch Miranda Massey uh, delivering the keynote address as part of this year's Art Plus Climate Equals Change Festival uh, on Wednesday, May the 1st at the University of Melbourne. It's a free talk, uh, but bookings are essential and you can do so via Eventbrite. Um, Miranda, thanks so much for coming by Triple R, given you've you just so stepped much. off the plane and enjoy your time in Melbourne. I, I will. I, I'm looking forward to everything and thank you so much for having me. Absolute pleasure. Thanks. This has been a podcast from 3RRR 102.7 FM in Melbourne. Truly independent community radio. Want to hear more? Check out our website at rrr.org.au.